Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Well, amen. How are we doing this morning? Awesome. Just as Scott said, we're back from a conference this week, so we have two days of teaching to get through. So buckle up. We'll be here a while. Now, I'm just saying, for those of you that are new, I'm Pastor Joey. want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We have just been praying for our community. We've been praying for you, and we believe that you come the same and you leave changed when you encounter the presence of the Lord. So that's our prayer for you today, is that you walk away a little differently than you came in because you got to meet the risen Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I just believe that he has a word for someone today, if not all of us, but just uh, there's just something on my heart that I believe that God has uh, laid, and we're going to get into that in just a moment. And I'm excited for our prophetic ministry, our prophetic team at the end. It's always a blessing to hear what God is communicating and speaking and, uh, and so I'm just uh, already pre-excited. Anybody ever get pre-excited? You know, it's, it's a lot of fun. We've been in the names of God, and, and uh, last week we, we talked about a hard subject, but that the Lord is our righteousness, that none of us are perfect. We can't get perfect enough to earn God's favor. And so what did God do? He came down and lived a life we could not live. He paid the price we could not pay, and he rose from the dead to offer us the life that we are all hoping, praying and uh, longing for, and that is life in Jesus Christ. And um, we talked about this a little last week, that the reality is that this life, as messed up as it is, is as close to heaven as some will ever get. But aren't you glad to know that if you're a follower in Jesus Christ, this is as close as to hell as you're ever going to get? There's a hope that we have in Christ, and it is a beautiful thing. Well, today we're going to get into a, another name of God, and it's, it's one of the names I just, I love to declare, I love to get into, but before we get there, I'm going to give you a little backstory. We're going to talk about David. David is one of my favorite characters of the Bible, David and Goliath David. You know what I'm talking about now? Probably like, who, what, David who? You know, but David and Goliath David. No, that's not his last name, but that's how we know him, is David and Goliath. David's story um, is become kind of this cultural thing. Like whenever you're hearing about anything where there is an underdog, you're hearing about a David and Goliath story, and that's how they describe it. It could be the lions playing anybody. The lions are David, right? You know, this year they got a shot, but maybe uh, maybe we'll have something to celebrate at the end of the year. But but mostly when you're watching the lions, they're David. Everyone else is Goliath, right? And, and, you know, if you watch the old Rocky movies with Rocky Balboa, even in the movie, that's an underdog story. They refer to the fight between Apollo and Rocky as the David and Goliath story. So this has become a cultural thing to know that anytime you're talking about somebody who is outmatched, ungunned, uh, and going up against an unbeatable force, that is a David and Goliath story. And, but before we even get to Goliath, how many of you know that David had an incredibly difficult life? He had a lot of challenges. The thing about David is he struggled through his entire journey, even up into that point where he's facing the, the giant. David was dismissed and overlooked his entire life. Now, there come, when David comes on the scene in the Bible, Israel's gotten to a place where their first king, King Saul, has kind of messed up enough to where God's like, I'm done with you. I'm picking someone else. I'm going a new route. 
And so God tells the prophet Samuel to go to this guy Jesse's house. He's got a son there, and he's going to anoint that son as the new king of Israel. So Samuel goes, and he approaches Jesse, and he says, Jesse, get all your boys. God's going to pick us a new king. So Jesse gets all of his sons except for David. Now, I'm reading this. I'm thinking, he said get all of the sons. Why are you leaving David out? Like, like, you don't just forget one of your kids. Like, if someone says, yeah, go get your boys, I've got Asher and Reese. That, I'm not going to leave one out because I know how many boys I have, right? So, but he leaves one out. And so this has created some questions is why, why is that? Did he just forget about them? You know, how many of you have ever forgotten a child somewhere, you know, accidentally? Never, ever? Yeah, I have. I've left my kids at church before. You know, well, I tell them it's their fault because they're not where they're supposed to be. And if they get left, that's on them, right? But, but we have. And I've gotten calls from people who are like, yeah, you got, you still here? Nope, I'm halfway to my nap. Well, you got a boy still here, you know, who will be left nameless, Asher. And uh, I had to go back to church and pick him up. And I was like, great, lost 10 minutes. But, but he just forgot that David was there or, or something was going on. And so we've kind of dug into Scripture, and there's a passage in Psalm 51, verse 5, that tells us maybe why David was left in the field versus being brought up to see Samuel. And in Psalm 51, verse 5, it says, Behold, this is David writing, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So this verse, many scholars believe, is David saying that his birth wasn't an honorable birth. That maybe, just maybe, his dad had an indiscretion, had an adultery, and he's the product of an adulterous affair. And so when Je or Samuel says, Jesse, go get your boys, he gets all of the boys he's proud of and leaves out the one he's embarrassed of or ashamed of. But we can read the story. We're not going to today, but we can read the story. And Samuel goes on down the line. He's like, is this one? God, is this it? Nope. And he goes to the next one. Is this one it? Nope. Goes to the next one, gets down to the list, and none of them are written. He says, don't you have any more sons? And Jesse's like, yeah, I actually do. Boys, go get your brother. And David gets anointed king. How many of you know that you're not called because you're qualified? But you're qualified because you're called. It's the way God's kingdom works. None of us are good enough. None of us can make it on our own. God uses the foolish things in life, Scripture says, to confound the wise. We don't talk like that. We don't use words like confound. But you know what that means? It means exceed expectations. It means that God likes to blow minds. He likes to make proud men eat their words. That's what confound means. He likes to take things that everyone just overlooks and use that to blow people away. And this is David's story. He was always alone. He was always on his own, even when he fought lions and bears. Like, can you, can you imagine that, being all on your own and seeing a crazy bear come out to trying to kill the sheep? And it's on you to make sure that the sheep stay taken care of. David had to learn early on to rely fully on one person, and that's God Almighty. One and one alone. He was used to being neglected and underestimated. But God didn't neglect him. God didn't underestimate him. God knew he was a man after his own heart. God saw what was truly in him. And so he has Samuel anoint him as king. 
And as after this moment, word starts to get around that David's not just a good shepherd, he's not just a good protector of sheep, but he's also quite skilled musician. And so Saul's starting to have some depression problems, and they're like, well, we need to find a way to cheer him up. And so they're like, oh, oh, there's this kid named David. We found out he's a pretty good musician. So why don't you go have him come play for you, Saul? And uh, whenever you're feeling depressed, that music will cheer you up. So they did that. So David gets moved into the court. He becomes a court musician, and he's ministering to the king. And so he's doing that in between tending his father's sheep. And what happens before long is that the arch enemy of Israel, the Philistines, they begin a campaign against Israel. They want to conquer the nation of Israel. And so they set up camp, and they set up in this ravine, and they send out their champion, the, the giant, Goliath, and they challenge Israel to a fight. And so Jesse, his boys were old enough to be part of the army. They're a part of the army. They're down on the front lines. David, where is he? He's out tending sheep. He's out, you know, doing what he's normally doing, off on his own. And his dad calls him in, and he says, hey, I want you to take some food to your brothers and see how they are and come back and report it to me. So even at this point, David's in the court of the king, and his dad's still treating him like an errand boy. You can see kind of what's, what's going on. But David goes. He obeys his father. He goes, and he sees what's happening. The armies are set up against each other. All of the armies of Israel, all the warriors are cowering in their tent. The king is hiding and shaking in his tent. Nobody will go out and face this giant. And we know what happens in the story. David starts asking questions, and his brothers dismiss him again. Who are you to even be asking a question? But he says, well, somebody's got to do something. I might be 15, 16 years old, but I'm not going to just stand here and let this guy talk bad about my God. I'm going to go do something. So he goes to the king and says, king, I want to do something. And what's the king do? He underestimates him. He overlooks him. Finally, the king says, okay, I guess we're going to let you. No one else is stepping up, so we're, we're going to let you do it. And lo and behold, what happens? The giant comes tumbling down. David is exalted to become a general in the king's army. It's incredible. But then the people of Israel begin to sing the praises of the king, and they give more credit to David than they do Saul. So Saul becomes jealous of David, and what's he start doing? He starts sending him out on suicide missions to kill him. Here this boy was ministering to him, helping him not feel depressed. He wins a battle that he couldn't win himself, and out of jealousy, he starts having him killed. And when God's with David and gives him favor and David becomes even mightier in battle, Saul realizes, well, the enemies of God can't kill him, so I'll just kill him myself. So he attempts to murder him on several occasions, and David escapes, ends up on the run. And so now David is on the run, fearing for his life, out in the wilderness, all alone. He's joined later by a few band of close friends and they're with him, and they're serving him, and they love and support David. But again, Saul's out to kill him, and there are multiple times in the wilderness where David has an opportunity to, to potentially kill Saul and become king as he was anointed, but David won't touch him for honor of the Lord. He says, who's going to touch the Lord's anointed? Not me. So David doesn't take advantage of opportunities that were there because he was honoring the Lord, and King Saul continues to pursue to the point that David leaves Israel, goes into the camp of his enemy, and starts to serve the king of Philistia. He becomes the bodyguard to the king of Israel's arch enemy. Now, one of the passages of Scripture we all know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. 
There's a line in that passage that may strike you strange. It says, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Why did David write that? It's because that's what God did. God provided for David at the table of the king who is the, arm, the enemy of Israel. God was with him. Even though he had no one else, God was with him. Well, Philistia decides to do what they normally do is they wanted to go after and fight Israel again. They, they're angry at King Saul, so they want to go take him down, and they decide we're going to launch this campaign against Saul. And they look at David, and they're like, wait, you're one of them. We can't take you with us, even though you've won battles for us. You've done all these great things. The king trusts David with his life, but they decide we're not going to put any courage or any trust in you, and they kick David out of the army so that they can go fight against Saul. So David's rejected again. He's doing everything right, and he's continually rejected, continually under underestimated. Where the army of Philistia goes to battle Saul, and Saul ends up dying. All of his sons die in battle. Philistia wins the battle, and Israel is decimated. And they decide, man, we can't, we can't go like this without a king. We need a king. And they said, oh, wait, yeah, there's that guy that beat the giant. Remember him? David. So David, finally, after all of that, years on the run, has his moment. He is anointed as king of Israel. The fulfillment of God's promises. And what happens after that moment? Philistia looks at David and says, hey, you are on our team. What are you doing leading the other, the other side? So they mount up their troops against David. And now David doesn't even have a chance to enjoy his moment because now he's facing yet another battle. And so David prays to the Lord. He asks God, God, are you still with me? How many of you would be asking that question? God, are you still with me? Look at all the stuff I'm going through, all I've been through. And now look, I'm supposed to be enjoying this rulership. This was what you promised. But look, nothing but battle, nothing but War, God, are you still with me? And God says, yeah, I'm with you, and I'll give you success. And so David goes and he fights, and God gives him the victory. And here's what David says in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. David came to Baal Perazim. David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for David, his example, and his life, and what you are speaking to us, God. We pray that you would open our hearts now, open our minds. Lord, I know that there's a message that you want delivered. So, God, I pray you'd help me communicate not in a way that can be understood, but in a way that cannot be misunderstood. Holy Spirit, we give you the floor. We give you our ears. We say, God, give us ears to hear eyes to see, a mind that understands, and a heart that believes every promise, every word. And Lord, we just give you our attention today. We ask you now to bless the reading of your word, the preaching of your word, and be glorified in all that's said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here David wins. He names the place Baal Perazim. But what I like at the end of the battle, it says they left their idols there. They left their idols. The Philistines were beaded. They left their idols there. This contest, just like the one against Goliath, was not just a battle between armies. It was a battle between gods. And when the Philistines were defeated and they left their idols there, it was signifying that the test 
the contest between the gods was decided, and there's only one God who is the Lord. That is Baal Perazim, the God who breaks through. The God of breakthrough. That's what David names that place. Names it after God. The God of breakthrough. So that name, Baal Perazim, is two words. The first one, Baal, is an interesting word. If you've read the Old Testament, you'd recognize it. It's the name of a Canaanite deity named Baal. It's a pretty bad dude. Child sacrifice, whole host of stuff that's, that's pretty disgusting. If you look at what they used to do to worship this deity. And you'd see, it's curious, why would David use that name for a name of God? Well, the thing is, prior to that name becoming popular in the Canaanite uh, culture, that name was a generic name that's, or a generic word that simply meant lord, master, owner, or as in a husband who is taking a wife, a possessor of something. It signified ownership of something. The name perizim means simply to burst forth or to break through. So you could translate this name as the master or the possessor of breaking through. The master of breaking through. So if you think of it, of it like this, if there's something going on in your life where you need a breakthrough, the only place you're going to find it, the only place you're going to get it is the one who owns all the breakthroughs. It comes from the Lord. Scripture says every good gift comes from the Father up above, the Father of lights. So God is the God of breakthrough. He's the one that owns all the breakthroughs. And if you think about how David describes the victory, he describes the intensity of the victory by calling it a flood. It's that God broke through like a flood. Now here recently the, in the news was a massive flood in Libya in the city of Derna. It's estimated to have taken over 20,000 lives. Marinate on that for a second. Our nation was devastated at 9-11 that it claimed 5,000. Times that by four. 20,000 lives. What happened was in the middle of the night, they received the half of the annual rainfall that that nation normally gets in a single night. It broke through dams. It toppled bridges. It went through the city in massive force. So I want to show you the picture of this is Derna. This is prior to the flood. You can see it just looks like any other city, any other place on the map. But let's look at it. The next one, this is afterwards as the water is still receding. It's devastated. It's almost washed away. This was a breaking through like a flood. Like a flood. What I believe what the Lord wants us to see as David is describing God broke through like a flood is that when God gets breakthrough... When God gives a breakthrough, it happens like this. It's overwhelming, and it's devastating to the enemy. To the enemy. But number two, this word breakthrough, this phrase breakthrough, has another connotation to it. It happens suddenly. There's a guy that David knew. It's another story found in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is a momentous occasion. David's finally united the tribes. He's won these victories, and he decided, how are we going to celebrate? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get the Ark of the Covenant. This is God's throne. We're going to take it from where it's resting, and we're going to bring it to Jerusalem. We're going to erect a tabernacle of praise and worship dedicated to God. And in this tabernacle, it was 24-7 worship. It was like church all day, every day, never stopping. 
It's amazing. This is what David had in his mind. We're going to do this thing. We're going to honor God rightfully the way he should. So he gets the ark. They put it on a cart, and they start bringing it back to Jerusalem, and they celebrate. They, the whole nation is out to celebrate this moment. It's such a huge moment of victory. Let's look at beginning at verse 1. It says, David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. So think about it. 30,000 people are, are following or leading as the ark is on its way back. He led them to Baalah of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who's enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah in Ohio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart. They carried the ark of God. Ohio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs, playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. This was a huge, big day of celebration. Big deal. But when, the, when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stubbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark of God. Like, it's like he's seeing it, it's going to fall on the ground, right? It's starting to stumble. So he just reaches his hand out, to study it. But verse 7 says, The Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. Here's the moral of the story. Don't touch the ark. Right? He's like, think about it. He was doing what he thought was a righteous thing. A good thing. I'm going to care for this. I'm going to make sure nothing bad happens to it. But God smites him dead find out later why. It's because only priests are allowed to touch the presence of God. He wasn't a priest. But verse 8 says, David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, and it's still called that today. So here David names this place, and he uses the same word as what he names for God. That word Perez for Perez Uzzah is the same root as Perasim for Baal Perasim. It's the exact same word. And so it can be translated to burst out, to break out. If you think of like a balloon popping all of a sudden, or, or a bomb exploding, or maybe a food contestant eating and all of a sudden regurgitating everything he just slammed into down his throat, right? There's pressure built and boom, puke everywhere. Right? It just burst out. Right? This is what happened. And this is what he's describing. There is a quick and sudden event. So if you think about the breakthrough, it's not just that God breaks through. It's not just that it's overwhelming and devastating to the enemy, but it's all of the sudden. It's all of the sudden. How many of you know about the and suddenly moments in the Bible? When you're reading through Scripture and you see the words, and suddenly, something cool is about to happen. It's great. You've got you to look at those keys. So breakthrough happens and suddenly. Somebody say and suddenly. It happens through and suddenly when you're not expecting it. This flood in Libya, in Derna, it happened in the middle of the night. No alarms went off, no warnings, no signs. Everyone was, as life as usual, asleep in their bed until all chaos came down. And it left them completely devastated. When God breaks through, it happens and suddenly. But here's the deal. It feels like an and suddenly moment even when God tells you it's going to happen. You know what I'm saying? 
Let's just look at a couple of scriptures. Well, we talk about Noah, Noah's flood, right? Matthew 24, 38 says, In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered his boat. It took him 100 years to build the thing. Hey, Noah, what you doing? Oh, I'm building a boat. Why? God's going to destroy everything. You have fun with that, you know, for 100 years. But then all of a sudden, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 4 says, For you know quite well when the day of the Lord, that's the end of the world, will return and come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. How's God going to return? Like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything's peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them. What? Suddenly, right? Suddenly, as a pregnant woman's labor pains will begin. Like a, a woman who's pregnant, she knows she's pregnant. Maybe the first couple weeks, you don't know. At 10 months, you know. You know what's coming. But the labor pains come on suddenly. Right? It's an and suddenly moment. So Jesus has been telling us about his return for 2,000 years. He's given us signs and things to look for. And I think we're seeing a lot of those things even now. But when it happens, it's going to catch us all by surprise. It's going to catch us all by surprise. I mean, think about it. When you're praying for somebody, you know God heals. How many of you know God heals today? How many of you have seen God do a healing miracle? Absolutely. But isn't it still shocking when he does it? When you're praying, you're like, oh, God, I know you can. Oh, God, I know you're going to do it. Oh, God, I'm believing for it. Whoa, God, look what you did. You know, it's just like, wow. You know, it catches us by surprise. Like, like we don't really believe he's going to do it, even though we believe he's going to do it. That's what that and suddenly feeling is. Well, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament speaks of and suddenly moments. The question I have for you to think about is why does God often tell us what he's going to do long before he does it? Why? Why does God tell us, I'm going to do this and then just make us sweat? You know what I mean? Like we talked about Abraham in the series. We talked about like, but seriously, like sometimes it's like, okay, God, I know you got your timing, but can we move it along? Let's go, bud. Come on, you know. Well, the prophet Isaiah tells us why. In Isaiah 48, he prophesies to Israel. They are rebellious. They've turned their backs on God. He's like, judgment's coming. You're going to get spanked by God. It's coming. But redemption is also going to be here. And then he prophesies by name who is going to bring the redemption. A hundred years before his birth, Isaiah names King Cyrus. You want to talk about a supernatural God and a supernatural book? No other book in history can prophesy a birth of a king 100 years prior to and see it actually happen. The Bible is a supernatural book. But he promises breakthrough. God promises Israel breakthrough, even though they're about to go through some really difficult times. But Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 48, beginning in verse 1, tells us why God makes us wait. Verse 1, it says, Listen to me, O family of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and born into the family of Judah. Listen, you who take oaths in the name of the Lord and call on the God of Israel. Like, these sound like good people, right? They're born into a Christian home. They're, they're doing Christian things. They're going to church. They're, they're doing all the spiritual things they're supposed to do. It sounds like they're pretty good people, right? But look what he says. He says, You don't keep your promises... Even though you call yourself the holy city and talk about depending on the God of Israel, whose name is the Lord of heaven's armies. Long ago, I told you what was going to happen. 
And then what's the next two words? Then suddenly, right? Long ago, I told you what was going to happen. You didn't listen. Then suddenly, I took action, and all my predictions came true. For I know how stubborn and obstinate you are. Your necks are unbending as iron. Your heads are as hard as bronze. That's why I told you what would happen. I told you beforehand what I was going to do. Then you could never say, hear what he says. Then you could never say, my idols did it. My wooden image and metal God commanded it to happen. I'm going to just let you sit in that for a minute. Why does God make us wait? Why does God let us get to our lowest point before the breakthrough comes? Because God knows how fickle we are and how stubborn we are. Craig Rochelle at a leadership conference one time, I will always remember this. He said, if you take credit for the failures, you also take credit for the successes in ministry. If God's leading you to do something and it doesn't work, that's not your fault. But if you take credit for it, then when it goes well, you're going to take credit for that too. And anything that goes well, that's not your fault either. It's God. It's all God. You see, we tend to make everything about us. And if God brought a breakthrough while we were striving for it, if God answered because we were fasting and praying, saying all the right prayers, doing all the right things, we would begin to believe it's about what we did and not what God can do. And then we turn our faith into really a pagan religion where God's the genie, and if we just incast the spells, we can convince God to do what we want him to do. Our faith isn't about formulas and prayers to accomplish our desires. But just as the enemies of David laid down their idols after the breakthrough that God gave David, when they saw there was no God like Jehovah, Jehovah is waiting for you to lay down your idols. Everything you're trusting in. Everything you're trusting in. Before he sends you the breakthrough. I think of a story in the New Testament. Paul is an incredible missionary. Signs and wonders are going through Paul. It says that he even did unusual miracles. Like everyone's doing miracles, but that Paul, he's doing some unusual miracles. I want to know what he was doing. Don't, don't you? Like sometimes I'm just like, a little more detail, God. Come on. A little more detail. But, I mean, they would take his sweat rags and touch people and they'd be healed. That's some holy sweat. You know, I mean, that's, that's crazy. Some of the stuff that God was doing through Paul. But Paul had some problems. Paul had some type of condition, whether it was spiritual or physical, we don't really know for sure. But he prayed about it multiple times. And each time Jesus showed up, he said, look, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And what God was basically saying is, like, I'm not taking this from you, Paul. I'm not taking it. My power works best in weakness or my power is revealed at its best in weakness what's God getting at with Paul well he knows our propensity to be self-reliant oh I can do it oh man if I could just do it this way or if I could just control it this way 
then I can work everything out the way I want. He knows our propensity to be prideful and self-reliant without faith. But how many of you know that without faith, it's impossible to please God? It's impossible. So what does he do? He lets us be stripped of everything we hold on to, every idol, until all we have to left to cling to is our faith. And all we have left is total dependence on him. That's what faith is. It means trust. When all we have left is faith, that's when breakthrough comes in glorious fashion, like a flood. And I've experienced this countless times, countless times. The most recent, the most significant in my life, I've shared this a million times. I'll continue to share it. I was just re reaffirmed uh, on why we share our testimony. If the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus and a testimony is something you recount to remember things that happened in the past, if we are claiming what happens in the past to foretell what God is doing in the future, then there's something significant about your testimony. And if your testimony is your story, then no one else can tell it. Just you. And so my testimony about seven years ago is our family was struggling severely. I didn't know if we were, my wife and I were going to stay together or not. And I've shared, shared this many times. But there are times, in all honesty, where it, it was desperation cry. It was on my knees before God. I knew everything going on was my fault. I deserved everything that was coming. And all I could say to God is, God, your will be done. I, I accept full responsibility. But if there's some mercy and grace that could be offered my way, I'm asking for this. And at times where I thought my wife was going to walk out the door, I would see her heart turn and come right back in. And time after time after time. Because at that moment, I had nothing else to hold on to. There was no way I could scheme, plan, arrange, control the situation to make it happen. I was completely at the mercy of the Lord. And it was the weakest place I've ever been in my life. God lets us get to that place of weakness so we know, beyond a doubt, when the breakthrough comes, who's responsible. When we see it, and suddenly... We know. And what I love about those and suddenly moments is doesn't it build your faith? Doesn't it? It's like that had to be God. That, that was God. You know? Like, oh, I'm praying for this person and they, they've got this issue. Like, what was it? Like last week or a week or two, we prayed for Brandon was having vision problems and, and he said he could you know, see fine at the end. I mean, that's God. Timmy was experiencing shoulder surgery. She's waving her hand right there in the back. I tell people about Timmy everywhere I go. It's awesome. She's going to have shoulder surgery. She comes forward. God heals her, cancels the surgery. That's God. It's God. We know what God can do, but when he does it, it does something in you especially when you're at that place where there's nothing else you can hold on to. No, no other excuses, no other you know, coincidences that could be had. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that's God. It opens your eyes to some great things. We trust him more. We depend on him more. Our faith grows, and with faith we can please God. The second name that we see in these texts, I don't know if you caught it when we read it, but it's the Lord of hosts. In the Hebrew, it's Jehovah Sabaoth. 
That was the name when God struck out against Uzzah and took him out at the ark. That was the name that was listed there for God. And as I was reading this, God was connecting things together. It's like I hadn't noticed that before. I hadn't noticed that the name was there and then the name was later. And God was connecting it for us here. And so I just was, before I even wrote the message for this week, I know it's kind of insight into me sometimes. When um, we planted this church, some of you may know this, some of you may not. I'd only preached twice in my entire life. I became the lead pastor of a church and had only spoken publicly two times. That's not the normal thing. I had a huge public speaking fear, debilitating anxiety. There were times where I was getting ready to go out to speak, and I was like telling God, I'm not doing it today. I'm not going out. They're going to be there. They're going to be looking at me. I'm not doing it today, right? But God was faithful. He's faithful. He made me a promise, and he's kept it. I've always had a message. The first message I ever wrote took me over six weeks to write it. The second message took me six weeks to write it. And then I was supposed to have one every week. I was like, God, math doesn't really, six, six, how am I supposed to have one every week if it takes me six weeks on average, right? We better get started now. But God appeared to me in a dream and troubled me. And I prayed through that. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me about the dream. And he said, I put my words in you and you'll always have a message. And I have had a message every week of my life ever since. It's not me. I, I, I will often go back and watch Sunday morning messages, and I'm, I'm not trying to be boastful or proud. And I'll go back, and I'll watch myself preach. And I'll be like, who is that person? Because how I feel right now is not what I see when I go back and watch it. It's God. It's God. It's how it works. When I was studying for this message, before I even had anything, I prayed and said, okay, God, what's your word for the church? I don't, I don't know where to go. I don't know what names to look at. you got so many. What am I supposed to pick? And the Lord spoke to my heart, and he only gave me two words. And suddenly. That was it. But when he spoke it, I knew two things. One, that's what I was supposed to study to lead me to the message for today. But the second one, he said, this is a word for somebody in the room. I don't know who you are, but what God's telling me is you're going to have your and suddenly moment. It's going to come. You're going to see breakthrough, and when it happens, your head's going to spin. It's going to happen. When you see God's glory in your situation, it's going to revolutionize the way you see life. It's going to be powerful. But just like the scriptures we've read, the time between the promise and the breakthrough is a time for you to humble yourself and surrender everything you're holding on to. You need to surrender the outcomes you desire. That's when I was in my lowest moment. That's what I told the Lord. I said, God, I know what I deserve. I know what I want. But you can have all that. I don't care what happens to me in the situation. As long as I'm okay with you, I'll be okay. You've got to surrender even the outcomes that you desire. Put everything into his hands. Fully surrender. This is that time for you. It's to get to that place where you're solely dependent on him. And I believe that when that breakthrough comes, it's going to break out like a flood. It's going to be overwhelming, and it's going to be devastating. And it's going to be awesome. The name Jehovah Sabaoth or Yahweh Sabaoth can be translated either as the Lord of hosts or the Lord of angel armies. 
It's the word hosts and armies are interchangeable. How many of you know that God is king over the armies of heaven? He's king over the armies of heaven. What power do angels have? Well, with one angel, he killed the firstborn in all of Egypt, both of human and animals. With one angel, he killed 150,000 Assyrian soldiers in the single night. With one angel, he shut the mouths of lions. And with one angel, he protected three in the hottest fire that killed the soldiers that threw them in there. Imagine if God can do that with one angel. Go there with me. Go there with me. If God can do that with one angel, what could he accomplish with all the hosts of heaven? So not only is God Lord over angel armies, he's also Lord of earthly armies. You know when God brought Israel out of Egypt and he began to, he had them build the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. He organized the tribes by armies. And he camped them around the tabernacle in armies. They had banners and they were camped in armies. And what's interesting about that word Sabaoth that comes from the word Sabbat, which is actually references the duties of the priests inside the tabernacle. So the priests that are working in the tabernacle, they're offering sacrifices, they're doing all these things. That word in four different ways refers to the work that they do, which is telling us that not only are priests doing spiritual things, but they're also doing battle. Their warfare is spiritual warfare. Often in Scripture in the Old Testament, you'd see the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God, and they would be out leading the armies of Israel into battle. You see this in the Battle of Jericho as the priests are out front. They're praying. They're praising. They're declaring shouts of praise, and they're blowing the trumpets, and then the walls come tumbling down. Often the priests will go before the armies, bringing the presence of God with them. So the priest's job is not just physical. It's also spiritual. Spiritual warfare brings about physical victory. You think of it like this. What God wins in heaven manifests itself on the earth. There's a pretty famous prayer. I don't know if you've heard it. It's called the Lord's Prayer. What's he asked for? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not only is Jesus praying for God's glory to be revealed, but he's praying for God's victories to break out all over the earth. That's why it ends with, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. It's a warfare prayer. Victory of the Lord. If you're a believer in Christ, how many of you know that you're also a priest of God? 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. Somebody say chosen people. You are a royal priest. Somebody say royal priest. You're a holy nation. Somebody say a holy nation. You're God's very own possession. As a result, you can what? You can show others the goodness of God. God has appointed and called you as priests of God to do nothing else but to show other people how good God is, which means he's going to do it through your life. That's how God's going to reveal his goodness. You're called out of darkness and into his light. Who do you carry? You carry God Almighty in you because as the priest of God, you carry his presence and the temple of God is now your very own heart. You carry the Lord. You know why we face so much opposition and warfare? It's because priests go out first. We take God's presence out into the battle. We lead 
into the battle. We go out and proclaim the victory before the victories even come. How many of you know that they had to shout and celebrate before the walls of Jericho came tumbling down? We're used to celebrating after the battle. All right, my boys are playing football right now. We're used to celebrating after the victory. What if we walked onto that field celebrating before the victory? People think we're crazy. Who do you guys think you are? You haven't even played the game yet. Yeah. Be like, remember the Titans. Hoo, ha, you know. I don't know if some of you don't know that movie, but it's great. You should check it out. But priests celebrate before the victory. Why? Because we know who we carry with us. We know who's with us. He's the Lord of heaven's armies. But as priests, we're in the thick of the battle. Now, here's what we have to understand is that victory doesn't come just because we have the ark with us. We carry God's presence, but victory doesn't come just because we have the ark. That was the foolish understanding of the Israelites in the end of the book of Judges. If you've not read the Old Testament, you're missing out on some good stuff. But before they even had kings, they had judges. And at the end of the book of Judges, they had wandered from God. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And they were up against a, an enemy, a foe. And they were nervous they weren't going to win. So what did they do? They said, oh, we've got the magic box in the tent. Let's go get the magic box. And that will guarantee the victory. And so what do they do? They get the Ark of the Covenant. They bring it out. They're defeated terribly. And the Philistines confiscate the Ark. And take it back to their land. Just having the ark with you doesn't guarantee the victory. It's not about being in possession of the ark that wins the victory. It's dependence on who's enthroned on the ark that brings the victory. They weren't trusting in God. They're trusting in themselves and their religion. If you're trusting in your own knowledge, your own experience, your own position, your own strength, your own thinking... Or just because you're a Christian and believing that's enough to put God on the hook to give you a breakthrough, you're sadly mistaken. Trust doesn't come in trusting yourself. Breakthrough doesn't come following your own way. Breakthrough comes when you're trusting in God and God alone. In faith, in Yahweh Sabaoth. Faith in Baal Parasim. The God who owns all the breakthroughs. To wrap it up here, I just want to share a couple final thoughts with you. Because God didn't just come through for David because David was anointed. He didn't come through for David just because they had the Ark of the Covenant. He came through for David because David put his trust in the Lord. Remember what David did before he went out to the Philistines? What did he do? He prayed. He prayed. Some of you are expecting breakthrough, but you haven't even prayed yet. Some of you are praying for a breakthrough, but you haven't even asked God whether what you should do about it. Oh, God, I need breakthrough. You want to know what I, you should do? No, God, I just need the breakthrough. You do it. Well, that's not how David prayed. Breakthrough didn't come without first trusting in Yahweh. Breakthrough didn't come without also David's involvement. First Chronicles 14, 11, it says, David and his troops went up to Baal Perazim, and he defeated the Philistines there. God did it, right? He's giving God the glory. But look at what he says. He used who? He used me to burst through my enemies like a raging flood. David didn't get victory without being in the fight, without being in the battle. 
He named God that place Baal Perazim because of how God enabled him to win the war. You see, some of you are asking for God to end the battle when you haven't even been willing to enter into the fight. Faith without works is dead. How many of you know that? You can say, I believe, but if you're not backing that up with your life, it's dead. It, it, faith is flushed out through your obedience. So you might be praying, you might be asking God, but you're not following what God's led you to do. God partners with his prophets, his priests, and his kings. And it's up to us in our journey with God to discern what God wants us to be in the moment. See, a prophet declares the word of the Lord. They give direction. Priests intercede for the people. And kings fight the Lord's battles. You need to know what God's calling you to be in the moment. Is he calling you to be a prophet? Is he calling you to be a priest? Or is he calling you to be a king? And we often get in God's way because we're not where God wants us to be and doing what God wants us to do. But God brought breakthrough for David because of his obedience, not his absence. And sometimes all God asks us to do is to pray. Sometimes he just wants us to intercede, to be a priest. It's like, this is not your fight. Step back and pray. Sometimes he raises you up as a prophet, and you need to give someone else direction. God's telling me to tell you this so they can go fight the battle and fight well. And sometimes God says, put your man pants on. It's time to fight. And anoints you as a king to fight the Lord's battles. But either way, we're involved. We're active. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now all glory to God who's able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. I love this verse, but what I always key in is that his power, how many believe God can do anything? He's all-powerful. But where's the power to do the impossible at work? Within us. Greater is he in us than he that is in the world. The spirit of the living God, God Almighty, his presence dwells in you if you have a relationship with God. So his power is going to be released through you, not in spite of you. He wants to work with you. He's going to act with you. He's going to use you, some of you, at your capacity to do incredible things. Some of you, he's going to take you beyond your capacity to do incredible things. But he's going to do it with you and through you. And I know when you are... Like David, sometimes life, you can feel alone, you can feel underestimated, you can feel neglected, you can feel like overlooked by everyone. Life can feel scary, but beloved, you're not alone. You're not alone. There's a reason why God had me look up and suddenly and connected that to the Lord of hosts, because we are not alone. Elisha the prophet was giving Israel advice on how to fight a campaign against a specific foe and they were getting mad because every time they go to fight Israel the Arameans would get beat because it's like someone was reading their mail or there was God was telling the prophet what they were doing well they discovered that Israel had a prophet and that was exposing all their stuff and so they're like okay here's the problem solution you know solved we're gonna go kill the prophet so they find out where Elisha is and they surround the city they're gonna charge in and they're gonna kill him and Elisha's servant starts freaking out. He sees the army. There's no way out. There's nowhere to go. And Elisha, I can imagine, is just kind of chuckling a little bit. Like, what are you being so ridiculous for? Second Kings 6.16, Elisha looks at his servant and he says, don't be afraid. I know it's scary. Man, this looks impossible. 
This looks like it's never going to end. There's no way out. I don't see any good coming out of this. But look what Elisha says. He says, there's more on our side than on theirs. Why are you afraid? Why are you worried? There's more on our side than on theirs. Then he prays, oh Lord, open his eyes that he could see. I just believe this is a word for someone right now. Like I can sense the Holy Spirit all over this. The lights aren't even off. I feel he's moving. There's somebody here. You need to know. God, open their eyes so they can see. So what did the Lord do? He opened the young man's eyes. When he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. The armies of heaven are camped around the people of God. What can God do with one angel? And you have an army encamped around you. See, what Elisha knew through his faith, the servant was getting to see with his own eyes. Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts was with them, surrounding them. Even though the Arameans were surrounding the city, Elisha knew they weren't outmatched, they weren't outgunned. What my friend, Pastor Jared Smith, said at the conference this week, outnumbered doesn't mean overpowered. Write that one down. Outnumbered does not mean overpowered. Beloved, why do we get so afraid, so anxious, so emotionally devastated? Why is the enemy able to steal our joy? Why do we get so tired? Why do we fall apart in the heat of the battle? Why do we feel outnumbered and overpowered? Well, it's because we're still holding on to some dang idols. And we forgot who is Baal Perizim. Who is Jehovah Sabaoth? That wasn't Elijah. Elisha knew. He wasn't afraid. He knew the God of breakthrough would break out against the enemy, and God did. Verse 18 says the Aramean army advanced toward him. Elisha prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness just as Elisha asked. God is listening to your prayer. God is ready to act in the midst of your faith, if you are dependent on him. God of breakthrough is about to break through in somebody's life. I just believe it this morning that God is giving out this word because he wants to open your eyes to the reality that you are not alone. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes for just a moment. As we close, I want to pray for us and then I'll invite our prophetic team to come and close us out with some prophetic ministry. See, God opened the servant's eyes, but he closed the eyes of the enemy. We're in the heat of the battle, facing a powerful enemy. May we not forget God is the God of breakthrough. Breakthrough will happen, and it will happen, and suddenly, as we trust him, may we be comforted in Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of heaven's armies. May we be reminded that there is more with us than there is with them. And if God be for us, who can be against us? My prayer for us today is twofold. One, God, we ask you in the name of your precious son, Jesus, to hinder every spirit of fear, robbing your people of their faith. Give us confidence in the mighty power of God and the power at work within us. 
the power of the Holy Spirit to bring us into victory. For it's not by might nor by power, but it's by your spirit that these things will be accomplished. Two, Lord of hosts, open our eyes in the heat of battle that we would see there is more with us than against us. That we wrestle, though we wrestle with flesh and blood, God, all we see is flesh and blood. We know that we don't wrestle with people. We wrestle with what's behind people. But that's all we can see because we are flesh and blood. So, Lord, I ask you that we would walk by faith and not by sight, that we'd remain faithful servants, priests in God's temple, declaring victory before it happens, fulfilling our ministry, and taking ground back that the enemy's stolen in this kingdom warfare. God, we just pray, Jehovah Sabaoth, you break out against the enemies who stand against your people. May they be blind in Jesus' name. May they be confused in Jesus' name. May they fall at your side in a mighty flood that you release when you release that breakthrough, God. We ask that they fall to their knees in repentance. You turn their lives back to you. God, we ask that you take the scales from their eyes like you did Paul, turning an enemy into a friend. God, that they would see the truth and that they would glory in your son Jesus. But God, we ask if they will not repent, then they harden the heart like Pharaoh did as you are asking him to let the people go. God, that they would remain blind, that you would give us the victory and you'd move them out of the way. That we could continue to walk confidently in our calling and trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that today is a new day and that the enemy can't rob us of the things that you have guaranteed us. God, I ask your forgiveness for even in my own life of when I let the enemy steal my joy, rob me of my identity, come against my faith because I was trusting in my own ability, my own skill, my own talent, my own knowledge. I was trusting in somebody outside of myself, trusting in a program or even a prayer. But God, today I reaffirm, I put my trust in the name of the Lord. You're the God of breakthrough. And we ask you to break through today in Jesus' name. at Vertical Life Church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.